Hi, everyone. Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. Over the past four decades, Alan Siegel has become one of the best-known figures in the branding business, and the Millennium Alliance had a chance to sit down and get the scoop on his brand identity firm, Siegel Vision, as well as his take on the changes in branding over the years. So during your very impressive career from founding Siegel and Gale to now Siegel Vision and working with so many top brands, how has marketing and branding evolved? Well, I started in this business in 1968 and it's been a revolution and a total disruption of the business. Um, When I started in the business, the advertising agencies controlled everything. The best and brightest people went to the agencies and the client was very dependent on on the agencies. And gradually, the uh, businesses began hiring the top people from the agencies. They took the media away from the agencies. And then we layered on top of that digital media and the internet. So the business is completely different. And a good example of that is we are working with one of the biggest educational institutions in the country, or if not the world, and we had to put a media plan together to introduce the new identity. And we brought a media company in, and they did an hour presentation. 55 minutes was covering the seven or eight or nine digital platforms in five minutes traditional media. Oh, wow, that's very interesting, a complete difference. So on Siegel Vision's website, it states that the purpose-driven brand is key to 21st century success. So what, in your words, does it mean to be purpose-driven in today's world? Um, the, uh, one of the things that I found is that most companies have mission and vision statements. Mm-hmm. They're generic, written by committees. People can't remember them. They don't provide real direction for the company. So I've been driving all of our clients to put it together a purpose statement. And it's it's not about doing social good. It's about what do they stand for? What do they believe in? What what are they trying to do as an organization? Um, And um, generally six, seven, eight, nine words. Makes a lot of sense. That's a very good piece of advice. So actually, it leads very nicely into this next question. In a city and a nation with thousands or millions of marketing messages competing for the consumer's attention, what does brand voice mean to a marketer? And can a marketer ever truly guarantee that they'll be heard? Yeah, I registered brand voice in the 1970s because my whole uh, career is focused on trying to bring consistency across all platforms. When I started in the business, there were advertising agencies, there were direct response firms, um, every, there were PR firms, every kind of firm imaginable, and each had their own message. So I've really tried to focus organizations on bringing consistency across all platforms. So the way I talk about voice today is it's not only how you speak, it's what, what you say, what is your content, and what do you deliver? Do you deliver on what you say you're going to do? So there's a consistency on across platforms, and there's a consistency on doing and delivering on what you say. So it's a, a broader, deeper concept. Mm-hmm. And I've found in working on projects now, if you just if you just show people strategies, they don't know what's going on. So what we've been doing is we've been translating our findings and our strategies into executions across all media to get clients to understand how to 
personalized communications, how to bring consistency across platforms, how to really connect with people with the new technologies as well as traditional technologies. Absolutely. Well, more and more consumers are craving consistency and authenticity right. of brand, brand message, brand voice. So the need to think customer first has really changed how the marketing function functions, for want of a better word. So how can CMOs better incorporate this consistent and authentic mentality into branding decisions? You brought up a really good point, and that's authenticity. You know, And you see what happened with Facebook recently, okay. right? And so corporations today can't get away uh, without being honest and direct with their customers. And one of the t basic tenets of my company is, since the 70s has been clarity above all and communicating with, to people with transparency, with honesty, with directness, uh, giving people information so they can make an intelligent you know, decision. So uh, I think that's one of the big, really big important changes where we're going to see corporations uh, now standing up and forcing uh, government and for and, and and the one thing to do the right thing and giving their customers intelligent explanations of what's going on. I mean, we all uh, you know just didn't pay any attention to these contracts on these websites, and they're unintelligible. They have offensive material in them. Mm -hmm. And um, for instance, I thought it was very interesting when the EPA said they were changing the you know pollution controls on cars. You know, you would think that cat, that uh, General Motors, which almost went bankrupt by not being open to newness and changing, would be, and, and who's spending so much money on electronic cars, would stand up and say, look, this is the wrong thing to do. It's in the best interest, not only of, of this country, but of the world to, uh, to deal with pollution. So this authenticity thing is really, really important, you know. And secondly, I think it's important for these companies to personalize their communications. So, for instance, I've had, a, I've had an American Express card since the 60s, right? Uh, and I'm a member. They mm -hmm. say member since, you know, 68. They send these notices to me that the government or their lawyers send, they have to send. They send me correspondence and in no way recognizes me as an individual, me as a member, and what, how much I spend with them and what my interests are. That is such a mistake, you know. So I think with the new technology, with all this data analytics and everything, companies sort of really have to personalize the communication and treat people as individuals. You know, and, and you say customer first. That's what they have to do. You yeah, know? absolutely. We're almost data rich but knowledge poor. There's so much data out there, but actually using it the right way to talk to the consumer right. on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Right. A lot of companies don't often quite achieve that as right. of yet. Um, so C-level executives around the world are anticipating digital technology, which has already changed um, the marketing world, to not only drive marketing, but also business as a whole. So how do you think technologies like blockchain and artificial intelligence are going to impact the industry? Well, I mean, I, I, I've been studying this and what's going to happen is um, people are going to be speaking to these devices that are in their offices and they're going to ask them for recommendations um, about uh, certain things. On the one hand, which makes branding more important, you have to have a distinctive brand that stands out and you have to have a loyal following so that you say, don't say, give me five recommendations. You say, get me such and such. Okay. So I think that's a very important consideration. Another consideration is if you call the bank, you call your insurance company, uh, you deal with a company, they're going to, you're going to be able to have a conversation with that device and whoever, whether it's a man or woman or 
whatever, they're going to be able to have a conversation. They're going to have access to your records if you have, a, you know, and uh, they and you'll be able to really have a discourse with them instead of just what's going on now. So there's huge emphasis on brands being able to build loyalty and distinctiveness and compelling customer uh, benefits to to rise above being one of the gang that they look at. Yeah, no, it's true. Like voice technology has been something we've been looking at and particularly how it's going to impact search. It's going to change the way marketers use search engine marketing, search engine optimization, because it's not just going to be enough to be on page one of Google. You've got to be the first answer when someone says, hey, Siri, or hi, Google, on their device. So it's definitely going to impact how we use these channels that become so every day for marketers in the business. So co-written with longtime colleague Irene Etzcorn, your book, Simple, Conquering the Crisis of Complexity, has been a huge success. Since both you and Irene believe in simplicity as a philosophy, what is the first step for business leaders looking to conquer complexity? Most companies are lazy and they don't want to deal with uh, dealing with complexity. I'll, I'll give you a good example. Um, um, we are, we have financial service companies that have very complicated products now, and you can do you can position the brand, you can make promises, you can inspire your brokers and agents and, and sales forces, but uh, you're still giving people contracts they can't read or understand, mm-hmm. right? And so for a company. Companies have to begin to deal with this, in my opinion. Educated customers are becoming more demanding, more educated, and can really put a lot of pressure on companies. They couldn't before. When I first started simplifying things, people said, well, we have no choice. What are we going to do? Now, you can aggregate people and, and put pressure on companies. So when we're doing this, we're talking to lawyers and we're talking to you know, public affairs people and when you and the, and the transparency laws and the laws that the government is passing is say things should be readable. And we say to them, "Have you tested the things you have to make sure they're readable?" And they look they look at you like you're crazy. What do you mean? They have no interest in it. So it takes courage because when you simplify something, all of the offensive things that are in that contract that have offended people and been used against them have to be taken out. And the product has to be recalibrated. Mm-hmm. And companies are not great at change management and dealing up to that. So I've been fighting this since 68, 70s with, with lawyers. And when I meet with them today, they bring up the same objections they brought up 25 years ago. That's really interesting, actually. That hasn't <coughs> changed from their perspective, really. Um, but it's interesting you say that because I think when even just something simple as writing copy, if you're writing copy for a new industry you haven't worked in before, you're instantly thinking, I've got to get these words in, this jargon that you know I saw online, I don't really fully understand, but I've got to have that word in. And actually, if you just broke it down and saw your customer as the human being that they are, the copy would be a lot more simple. So even just in a very simple example. I don't think the, when I, the first thing I ever simplified was Citibank's loan note. Mm-hmm. And they had, the biggest lesson that I learned is they had a 280 word default provision. You know, essentially it said, if you do any of these things, you defaulted and, you know, you have to pay penalties or we'll take the contract away. And when I investigated it, I found out the bank had no way of enforcing it. They didn't have communications uh, programs that could identify 90% of these default provisions. And in effect, you you defaulted if you didn't pay on time. So a 278 uh, word paragraph 
was simplified into one sentence, you know, a default of you don't pay on time. And, and what we learned then is that, you know, the underpinning of, of, of getting rid of complexity is simplifying the content before you try to write it or present it. Definitely, definitely true. Mm-hmm. So with all the new trends and technologies out there, it's very easy to become overwhelmed by the potential that these innovations are offering to the industry. So what advice do you have for other C-level executives and industry leaders as we progress into the future of marketing? Most companies have to really concentrate on being distinctive and standing out from the competition. And we're working a lot now, you know, in education and not-for-profit along with for-profit companies. And the big, big challenge is how do we differentiate ourselves from the competition? Mm -hmm. How do we convey our personality, what we stand for? Uh, How do we personalize the communications and make sure that people understand it? How do we ensure that the company delivers what they're promising? And that, that I mean, that's a really, a real critical thing. And I, that's how I define voice. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's what you say, how you say it, and delivering on the promise. And most companies don't have really distinctive positioning. Most companies do not have voice programs. Most companies haven't figured out how to deal with the uh, dramatic changes that are going on with digital media. I would say a vast majority of websites are not effective. Too much information. It doesn't get right to the point. Doesn't get to the point, hard to access, lacking in personality. I I think another thing is that a lot of these companies, their communications are lacking in passion. Mm -hmm. That's interesting you bring up passion because actually you need to have passion in your product so that consumers feel your passion and Mm -hmm. feel engaged enough to purchase. So can you tell us a little bit about the three principles of complexity that you detail within your book, empathize, distill, and clarify? Right. Well, um, I've talked a little bit about distilling. Um, 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 Empathy is really a critical element underpinning everything we do, understanding who our audiences are. And what we can't underestimate the value of employees and and, and communications programs, really, and marketing programs have to be keyed to the uh, employees who are the ambassadors of the brand. They, they, they represent the, the company in the marketplace. They create the communications. That having a spirit and, and understanding about the purpose of the organization, what it stands for, how they want to talk to people is, you know, absolutely critical. So empathy has been an underpinning of everything we do, Un- understanding who we're dealing with, uh, wh- whether it's an internal audience or external audience. And um, if you go to a hospital, um, if you're buying life insurance, um, if, if, you're buying, if you're buying an expensive car, uh, understanding what kinds of pressures people are dealing with uh, is really critical. Distilling is basically getting rid of extraneous things and cutting things down and making them useful, right? Mm -hmm. And clarity is the theme of my life, clarity above all. Um, It's more than simplicity. It's making sure that when you speak to people and you have programs, that, that they really are understandable and usable and functional. Absolutely. It's interesting you talk about you know, the message in an internal business. We've noticed recently that there's a trend that CMOs are becoming increasingly invested in corporate culture. So as you said, from engaging employees as brand ambassadors, but also to beat out the competition for the top talent. Um, so how can these three principles be applied within the business to help transform corporate mentality from complexity to simplicity? You know, I mean, the, I think the biggest problem in the world today is lack of leadership. 
you know, and uh, building a culture drives uh, out of strong leaders and people who really believe in things and are consistent. And when, when I when I go when I go out and talk to people, I ask them to tell me tell me about five business leaders, you know, that you really respect and are good leaders. And they can't name they name the same one or two or three. And recently, I did a survey because we're doing a lot in education. And I asked uh, in this survey, I asked people across the country to name five presidents of universities. They couldn't name one. When I was growing up, university presidents, you know, mm -hmm. were you know were really important, and and so on. So I think I think the key to all of these programs is building a culture that this, that so the company functions effectively. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always say you know culture beats strategy to death, and but so f so few companies really that we see have a strong culture, mm -hmm. and I think it it comes out of lack of leadership. It's got to come from the top down. It doesn't, you know, and. I mean, a lot, a lot of business today has been driven down to the middle, to committees and groups of people. Uh, when I first started in this business, our client was the CEO. In many projects that we deal with now, we have minimal contact with the CEO. And the CEO has to live the brand. The CEO has to make decisive decisions. Uh, a CEO has to look forward. You know, standing in place isn't going to do you any good. And I see a paucity of this. I'm really f confused by it. I, I'm upset by it. Whether it's in government or business, you know, or in education, or international affairs, there's a lack of leadership. Absolutely. I mean, is there one characteristic that you think defines a great leader? Well, um, I've been in I've been in this business a long time, and the best leader that I've ever seen was the president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Mm -hmm. You know, 15,000 students, part of you know, uh, City University of New York. And he was a great leader. I admire him, he's become a good friend. And it's the best program I ever did. Of the three or 400 programs I did, it's mm -hmm. the best. And I, I, I attribute a lot of it to the fact that, you know, we really, he was a great leader, we, we, we connected, but he had presence, he had vision, he had a marvelous personality. Uh, he lived the brand, mm -hmm. and he had great taste. And by that, I'll say this: he he initiated um, an award where we took three people from around the world who did more for justice, right? Mm -hmm. And we had a we had in our auditorium we had people come. We had you know thousand people come. So he designed the evening, and he had opera singers and uh, sing between the. We had famous people introduce them. Then we had opera singers. Then after we had a dinner and he had a big sheet up on the wall and he had seven girls who were 12 years old playing Mozart. Oh, and, wow. and I always said, where did you learn that? You know, you went to Yale Law School, you worked for the Justice Department. Where did you get, and the food was great. Where did you get this taste? So everything he did, uh, the, the theme of the uh, company, that, of the school that we did is Fierce Advocates for Justice. Mm -hmm. And he lived it. And so the other day, I got a letter from a girl who was from the Philippines who, who went to the school, and she's disabled. She's in a wheelchair. And she wrote me, she wanted, I tried to help the students here. She wrote me a letter and said, will you help me get into law school? And I said, I would. And she told me, she said, I, I, I couldn't get around the school, you know. And given that the theme of the school is fierce advocate and justice, I became the advocate for the disabled, you know. And so he had drilled that whole theory in, in that whole positioning into the students, you know, who who lived it. 
And that, and so when they go out in the world, they're fierce advocates for justice. They're, they're bringing real value to working for the government, you know, working in a law firm, whatever they do. Wow, it's absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um, so what has retiring as chairman from Siegel and Gale and going on to create Siegel Vision taught you about yourself? Um, that uh, in order to stay young and vital, um, I have to be on the forefront of, of an industry that I helped create. I mean, I'm, and, and leaving that company, we know, which had many hundreds of people and was part of a big holding company, inhibited my ability to work with purpose-driven organizations that are small, work with organizations that can't even afford to pay us. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be involved in, with, with companies that were making a difference and innovation and not about just making money. So with all the innovations in the marketplace today, the increasing complexity of the marketing role, is simplicity truly achievable? Yeah. I mean, if, if it is. If you have good leadership, you know, I mean, if you have people running organizations uh, who really live it and um, believe it, and if you have people who are, you know, are, are bright and responsive and want to do a good job, yeah. It can be done, but but as I said, sim, uh, simplicity is 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 very very hard. It's about change. It's about uh, um, taking on cha- challenges. So, f- for instance, when when I first started doing simplicity, I worked for a lot of insurance companies. So we took their policies, which were unintelligible, and made them simple, right? And so they had to fire people in the purchasing department, you know. Because we didn't, a lot of it was electronic. We didn't even have to have paperwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had to fire, they had to fire certain lawyers who refused to simplify things. They, they said it puts the company at risk. And you just go down the line. So change, change, that caused you know, significant changes in the companies and the way they did business and the way they thought about things. So when you, when you simplify things, you disrupt, you know, and, and you cause upheaval. Mm. And and have thing, people have to do things in a different way, and it's not easy for people. People don't like change, they, you know. They don't. <laughs> and uh, but you know, so it's not just about how you write and how you talk to people. You know, it's what you, what is your what are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? And ensuring that you do it. Mm-hmm. So you know, one of the one of the most interesting things is to me is in medicine, and you look at somebody like the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic and. Uh, MD Anderson and companies like that, they, they really get it. You know, they have patient first programs. And before, when you apply to go there, you fill out a lot of paper. When you get there, you just put in your room and you're taken care of. They have somebody coordinating what's going on. And I went to the Cleveland Clinic with Irene, we were writing our book. You know, Irene said, why does it smell so nice here? I said, because we open the windows, you know, so people can breathe. When, when you wait for somebody that's having an operation in your family, you have a code number and there's a big chart up on the wall that tells you the status of what's mm-hmm. going on, you know. When you see companies like that, and, and the Mayo Clinic's like that too, you know, where so is MD Anderson, so is some of the, uh, when you compare them to some of the hospitals, particularly the hospitals in New York, which are chaotic, you know. Um, you, you say, you know, it can be done. Where, what is it from? You have really strong leadership and a real philosophy of taking care of the patients. Uh, I, when I was walking down the hall in the Cleveland Clinic, somebody spilled some coffee, you know, and three people came out, you know, and, and wiped it up. I was looking, um, I was looking at uh, a directory and two doctors, two doctors came up to me and said, can we help you? I was walking down the hall 
and there was a huge sign, and um, in that sign was a, was a woman. And the woman said to me, where are you going? And I, I was talking to the sign, and I said, I'm going so-and-so. And said, well, here's a map and how you can get there, and if you, if you have any trouble, call me at 211. So just when you, when you go through the place, mm-hmm. it's beautiful, it's clean, people, and everybody's working toward the same purpose, you know, making, and if you get in an elevator, you don't see people and, you know, and jitneys with stuff coming out, they have a separate mm-hmm. el- elevator bank, you know. Just about making the patient feel more comfortable. I mean, being in hospital is typically a stressful sort of environment, such a situation. So just thinking about those touch points just yeah. goes the extra mile. I mean, to me, uh, it's in my book I wrote. Irene and I were so taken back because the hospitals in New York here, if you go to an emergency room, I, I had to wait 15 hours in an emergency room about eight weeks ago when I really got sick. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's just inexcusable. You know? yeah. It just adds to the pressure of the situation as well. Yeah. And I went, you know, I, I, every four years I go for, you know, some kind of cardiac test, which you do when you get older. And you, you sit in these chairs and you have to fill out all this paperwork. And all around you are people who've had heart attacks lying on jitneys with things coming out of it. So this particular hospital, it was a client of ours. And, uh, you know, we, t- we worked it out. So now you get the paperwork in advance. Those people go on a different mm-hmm. elevator. The seating is comfortable. They've, they've streamlined the process. So instead of taking four hours, it takes two and a half hours. When you pay attention, but no one ever paid attention to that. You know, it was all about getting people better and not what the experience is like. Definitely. Yeah, so. I think, you know, it's very true that you need to walk a mile in your customer's shoes to really yeah. understand what an experience yeah. is like and to give them that extra. So we are absolutely thrilled that you're going to be joining us as our designated keynote speaker at CMO Day New York in June, actually on June 12th. So what are you looking forward to most about the event? Well, I love talking about what I'm doing and having an interaction with, with people who are on the line doing it. So I, I really enjoy these experiences, meeting, you know, I, I love meeting people and I love hearing what they're doing and I love people asking me hard questions. That's how I learn. I'm, you know, you asked me before about doing this. I'm constantly learning and pushing and shoving. Mm-hmm. You know, when at Siegel and Gale, we were part of a big holding company, right? And there, and, and the emphasis on making money, my emphasis is on a learning and challenging people, stimulating people, doing things better, providing, you know, providing insight. Uh, so these kinds of presentations where I get to interact with 150, 200 people, I really enjoy. It's one of my favorite things to do. Thanks for listening and be sure to check out our other interviews exclusively on Digital Diary. 